Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Okay, good morning church. What a wonderful privilege to to be with you today, to gather with you. And today we are kicking off the series on 2 Corinthians. We're calling it Unmasking the Church. So today is just the first in... Sure, I think about seven parts of this series. So I want to encourage you as, as we go through this series to start reading through the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, at the very least, read chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5 just to, to get the, the whole background of, of what this series is about. But if you, if you can, please read the whole book. We're going to spend quite a lot of time here. So it will really, really be worth your while. So this, this book of 2 Corinthians is a, is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And a lot of what we're going to be talking about, you have to infer. You almost have to read between the lines. You have to do something called mirror reading to, to really see um, what's going on and what is, what is behind what you're actually reading. It's kind of like listening to someone else having a a conversation on the telephone. You just hear one side of the conversation, but you can't hear what the other person is saying. But if you listen carefully enough, you actually form a a good picture of what what the other person uh, might be saying. You You can glean a lot just by listening to one side. So I'll admit that it... um, is maybe a little bit subjective, but I've done, I've done my research and um, I'm quite confident in that I've got, I've got a good picture of, of what's going on. And you may, you may differ from me in, in some, of the, some of the assertions, but uh, you'll have to wait till later. You can confront me about that. Today I've got the microphone. So let's, uh, let's get into it. Let's start by reading... 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and it says, Paul's writing, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, and found that the Lord had opened the door for me, I still had no peace of mind, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them, and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession, and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. So in this um, passage and in the background that I'm going to try and give you um, to, the, to the whole book actually, but especially to this passage, in that um, passage you're going to see just three conflicts that's going to play out. There's there's a historic conflict between Paul and what he referred to as super-apostles, who were his opponents. Then 
there's a conflict between two Gospels. There's a conflict between the Gospel of the victory of man and the Gospel of the victory of God. And then lastly, there's a conflict between God and us. Between God and Jesus Christ on the one side fighting with us and us fighting with God. So there's a, there's a conflict between us and God as well. So those are, are the three conflicts that we are going to, to be diving in. But let me first give you a little bit of background. And, and I'm hoping that, that this will also give you the context that you need to understand the whole book of 2 Corinthians. And to understand all the, um, the sermons in this series that are still coming up. It's really, this is, this is a foundation that, that will make sense of everything else. So, the church um, was in Corinth. It, it was established by Paul in AD 49. Um, the, this city, the city of Corinth, was a very wealthy city. So, it's located in Greece. It, um, it was destroyed in... Ooh, what was that? 146 before Christ, the Romans actually destroyed the city, completely leveled it to the ground. Then about 100 years later, it was um, re-established by Julius Caesar. And about 100 years after that is when Paul arrived. And now it's a, it's a Greek city, but in a Roman, under Roman control. And it's a very wealthy city. It was... Um, located by the Isthmus of Corinth, which is a narrow land bridge between um, the Peloponnesian Peninsula and the mainland of Greece. And what you, can, what you can see when you look at the map is that there's a... Let me first lay out the, the world here for you. So you can see map of, of the Mediterranean. You've got Jerusalem all the way down in the bottom right. North of that is Antioch. In the center of the map, you'll see Ephesus. And important to keep in mind is that Paul is actually writing this letter from Ephesus. Right? North of Ephesus, you can see Troas. Then to the west of that, that that's Macedonia. And you can see the city of Philippi um, and the city of Thessalonica. So... So that's also going to come into the story. And then south of that, um, south of Achaia, is the city of Corinth. And you can see the isthmus there, that narrow land bridge between the two land masses. And why the city of Corinth became so wealthy is because um, cargo ships would dock on the western side, and then they would unload their cargo, and it would be transported over land, to a harbor on the other side, on the eastern side, where it would be loaded again and then transported from there. And by doing that, the merchants could cut out a lot of the time as well as the danger of going around the peninsula. And the city of Corinth, they levied um, tolls on, on this traffic that crossed the isthmus. So Corinth was, was quite a wealthy city. And also in the time of Paul and in the time of this letter... It was um, very wealthy. So, Paul established the church in 49 AD. He spent, according to Acts, about 18 months in Corinth. So, really laying a strong foundation for the church. Um, then, after this, he returned to Ephesus. 
And from Ephesus, he and this church started exchanging several letters. So we know there was at least one letter before the book of 1 Corinthians. Then there was a correspondence coming from the church in Corinth asking about things like marriage, about food sacrifice to idols, this kind of thing. But there was also some news um, coming from the household of Chloe, who was a member of the church in Corinth, that informed Paul that there was actually factionalism developing in, in Corinth, and um, that this is where we get that famous passage in 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, you know, you say some of you are for Paul, some are for Apollos, some are for Peter. You know, why, why is Christ divided? And he urges unity. And this is where, where 1 Corinthians gets written. He, he addresses this emerging factionalism. And he then also addresses the questions that, um, that the church wrote to him about. And he sends this letter by Timothy, one of his disciples. And he sends it to Corinth. Now, the reason why I wanted to show you the map is that you can get a sense of the distances. Right? When Paul sends a letter... It's not an email that arrives right away. It actually takes quite a bit of time. And depending on the season, in winter, the ships actually had to go around coasting, all around the coast to get to the other side. They couldn't do the direct crossing across the, the Aegean Sea um, just because of the weather. So you can keep in mind that a lot of time between when a letter is written and when it's received and then waiting for the response again. So Timothy took this letter to, to the Corinthian church. Um, and when he, when he came back, he actually reported that the, the problems in Corinth are much worse than what they expected. And that there was not only this factionalism about, you know, do you follow Paul or, or Paulus or Peter, or one of, you know, the, this core group of, of apostles, but there were new leaders who have come into the church and that they were now preaching a different gospel, preaching a different message about Jesus, and they were drawing all the disciples after themselves. So Paul, the moment Timothy brought that news back to Paul in Ephesus, Paul decided to go right away and he went straight to, to Corinth to address this issue. But when he got there, they rejected him outright. He was basically shown the door and they chased him out saying, you know, where are your letters of recommendation? And you, know, you are not a very good speaker and look at your life. You know, Paul, you read later in the, in the letter of Second Corinthians as well, where he summarizes all the hardships that he endured all the time. You know, he was often shipwrecked. He was a poor man. He always had to do manual labor to supply his own needs. Um, he tells about how many times he was stoned, how he was often hungry, how you know, he traveled and he was always in danger. So the people looked at this life and they said, but you're not blessed. Yeah? We want to be blessed and your, your lifestyle doesn't seem to be materially blessed. And you know, we've now got these other teachers who are teaching us how to have a much nicer and more comfortable life. So Paul actually left Corinth and um, returned to Ephesus again. And even this, you know, deciding to leave and 
not retaliating, not insisting on his apostolic authority, made him look even worse. Because these, these opponents of Paul, the, these new teachers who were coming in, you know, they always made a very good impression. They were very well spoken. You know, they looked very strong. And Paul, in contrast, looked really weak. So let's look a little bit into the character of these guys. You know, the, the super apostles, like, call, like Paul called them. You know, he's referring to them, super apostles, being like, you, these guys are so much better. You know, they appear so much better. And, you know, they were Jewish, um, Jewish Christians, and they came in a tradition that was well known in the city of Corinth at the time called Sophism, which was they were teachers of wisdom. And these guys would, would speak um, or would teach a, a lifestyle or a, a worldview and try to, to create a following. So they would you know, go around sharing their, their gospel and they would try to, to create a following. Now, Sophism wasn't only among Christians, it was actually a Greek tradition. And even in Corinth, it was well known that, that people would say, you know, that I follow this teacher. He's, he's my guru. And there was a lot of competition between these guys, competition for, for followers, competition for fame. And the same kind of thing happened with these Christian sophists. And it's no surprise that they then tried to work Paul out. You know, this the kind of competition... Um, just got them to, to say, you know, we must get our opponents out of the game. And, you know, they were very eloquent speakers. They, they were very impressive in their appearance. They, we read that they always wanted money for preaching, you know, so, so looking good, well-dressed. Um, they came with letters of recommendation. So there was this kind of system of letter writing and saying, you know, listen to Henny. Henny's a really good pastor He's got a message, and churches would recommend these guys to one another. So, you know, they had a good reputation, and, and status was, was very important. And to them, Paul's message was an inferior gospel. They, um, they probably ridiculed what he was saying and said, look, your gospel doesn't bless the people, and what they meant by blessing was material blessing. Uh, they, they didn't consider you know, the inward heart of things, but they rather, uh, as it says in chapter 5, they gloried in outward appearance rather than what was in the heart. And the, the way I've, I've also seen this kind of gospel play out in our time is when people might say something like, you know, I've been in church for so long, or I've served church, you know, I, I was in the worship band, and I went to intercession, and I did all the things, I did all the encounters, but still, you know, why don't I have the wife yet? You know, why am I struggling? Why, you know, I thought by this time my life would be blessed and amazing and, you know, God is not keeping up his end of the bargain. Yeah, and that, that's often the result of, of listening to this kind of, of message that actually proclaims a victory of man. You know, it proclaims if you do these things, if you follow this teaching, if you, you know, follow our example, these, these super apostles would point to themselves and say, you know, we're the example that you need to follow. Look at how blessed I am. You know, I've got the nice car. 
maybe the jet, you know, and the pretty wife, you know, follow my example. And, and that's, a, that's a mentality of the victory of man, and, not, and it brings no glory to Christ, right? It, it's, not, it's not a life that requires faith. You know, it, it will talk a lot about faith, but it's not, it's not faith in, in the work of Jesus. It's faith in my ability to perform. So, so victory of man is, is something that's always going to, to drag you down and that's always going to, to exclude Jesus from the story. And we, we actually see this in our own country even. We've got um, you know, these guys that, that are often called prophets you know, or, or shepherd. And when you look at their lives, you know, they've got many followers but they're extorting a lot of money from them. And then when the, when the spotlight gets shone on them, it turns out that their life is full of scandal and there's no, there's no godly character there. So we actually have, have examples of, of these guys as well. Uh, but not just to, to look you know, over there, look at those people. I, I realized how I was caught in this myself. You know, some time ago, you know, I was at home and sinning, and uh, in private, as you usually do. <laughs> and, and, and as I was sitting there thinking, you know, I should feel guilty about this. But, but really, I'm not feeling guilty. I'm just glad that the people at church are not here to see me now, because I'd be so embarrassed if they saw me now. You know, they think I'm a really good Christian, and if they, if they had to see me now, you know, yo, my, whole, my whole reputation would be ruined. And look, looking, back, looking back at that now, I realize I was living from the same principle of living according to a gospel of keeping up a good appearance. You know, I was, I was just as caught in that. And it wasn't the fear of God that was ministering to me. It was the fear of man that was ministering to me. Uh, I was not relying for my salvation in the victory of God. I was relying on the victory of man. And the victory of man, unfortunately, is only skin deep. It's only what people can see. But what's in your heart is not affected. But the victory of God is what can really change our hearts. So, yeah. And then I look around church and I see all these nice people. You know, especially when... When we've been gathering lately and I was looking at the people, the people around um, and the people who are coming to church and there are really all these lovely, lovely people. You know, we've got such nice people in church with us and it bothers me. It bothers me terribly that we just have nice people at church. Where are the, the hurting people? Where are the, the poor and the poor in spirit who know how much they need God? You know, it, it, it bothers me that the collective message that our friends and our neighbors, you know, our colleagues that they are getting from us, somehow they get the idea that they have to be, you know, sorted out and they have to have their lives in order before they can come to church. You know, I don't know why, why it is, but the, the most people that we attract are nice. And the gospel, Jesus said, a doctor isn't just there for, for the healthy, a doctor is for the sick. And somehow the collective effect 
of our lives is that we are attracting nice people to church. And it, it, it really bothers me. And, and I think even if the broken do come to church, I'm worried that they'll look around and say, oh, but I'm not, like, I'm not so perfect. You know? I'm not good enough to, to actually be here. You know, my life is still a mess. I guess I'll go and sort out my life. And, and when, I've, when I've cleaned myself up, then I'll, then I'll come to church. I think it's just tragic because, you know, where's the, the true gospel that, that Christ came to, to die for sinners? You know, where, where's that message? And, and this is why the, the gospel of man's victory, the gospel of keeping up appearances, can't save people. So Paul then returned to, to Ephesus and, and he decided to write a letter that, that was going to address all of these issues. And he refers to it as a, as a severe letter or a, a tearful letter. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have a copy of it, but he, he says that he wrote it with so many tears. And, and I think that already tells us something. Um, and it's, uh, I think the tears probably probably come from him on the one hand saying, you know, you guys are now starting to believe a gospel that has no power. A gospel that, that's relying on you and not on Jesus. It's a different gospel. It's a different gospel from the true gospel. But I also think the tears reveals his deep love. He actually says um, in another part of, of Second Corinthians that he wrote this letter out of deep love for them. And, and I think that's because when you believe the gospel of the victory of man, it's harmful. It's harmful to, to you as an individual, but it's also harmful to the community, to the church community. It's harmful to you because if you succeed in keeping up a good appearance, you'll be proud. Right? And, and, and you won't have any trust in God for your salvation. You know, you'll say, no, I'm, I'm good enough. And you'll basically... Bring, bring your performance to God and say, you know, God, you owe me the blessings. You owe me the good things that I desire in my life. So, so that's harmful to you and it's harmful to your f- faith. But it's also harmful to the church, to the community. You know, when you succeed in keeping up your appearances, but now you look down at everyone else who doesn't have the same level of victory and breakthrough and blessing that that you've got. So, so it destroys the community. On the other hand, if you fail, if you feel like you're not living up, you know, that is also terribly harmful because you'll feel like, I can't come to God. You know, I, I need to just stop my sinning and stop all my bad habits and you know, be reconciled to my friends and family and people that I've hurt and maybe then I can come to God. But until then, I can't come to God. And that, that is even, even worse, that you can't, can't approach God. On the other hand, it's going to destroy community when people who, who feel like they don't measure up also feel like they can't come to church. They can't be part of the church because you know, everyone at church is so perfect and so nice and they've got their, their lives together. So it's terribly harmful. And... And I think 
when the world looks at a, at a church like this, it just says, I, I can't go there because my life isn't sorted out. On the other hand, I think those of us who are inside, if, we're, if we are living with, a, with that gospel paradigm, that gospel is going to tell us, you know, you're an imposter. You know, we, we often talk about imposter syndrome. When will they finally find out that I'm a fraud, that I'm not really all I pretend to be? And that just destroys your, your freedom, and there's no joy in that. There's no, there's no freedom. So it, I think what, what ends up happening is, you know, we live this, this curated life where we just, you know, publish selected moments on social media, you know, so people can, can have a picture because we, we control what image other people have of us. And, and it's, that, it's that fear that if people really knew who I was, if they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. If they really knew my character, my heart, then you know, they wouldn't accept me. And I, oh, what, a, what a prison. You know, what a prison to live like that. But the gospel is completely the opposite. The, the gospel of the victory of God is that even though we are so bad that Christ had to die for us, and God knew you, He knows everything about you, and He still loves you enough that Jesus came to die on your behalf. And, and He had to die for us, but you were so loved that, that He was happy to die for you, that He gladly died for you. That's the gospel. You, you know, you, you're known to the bottom, you're known to the very depths of your heart, and still God loves you all the way to the sky. I mean, isn't that good news? Isn't that freedom? That you can come to God with your brokenness, with your weakness, and He loves you un- unbelievably. <laughs> so, that's, a, that's one, one way of explaining the gospel. You know, we have our metaphors that we use to, to explain the gospel, and I think there are some metaphors that are, that are more well-known and well-loved than others. And the one metaphor that, that we love to talk about um, in the church is that, that we are the family of God, you know, that God is our, our loving and benevolent Father, but then we rebelled against God and we ran away from home, but then through a, a series of, of bad choices, we got into a kind of a downward spiral of bad choice leading to bad choice leading to bad choice, you know, until we got to a point where we were so down in the dumps that, that Jesus, who's our older brother, had to leave home, had to come and find us, come and pull us out of that pigsty, had to sacrifice himself to bring us home and to, to restore us to the family. And that metaphor is beautiful and it describes the gospel, but one metaphor isn't enough to, to describe the whole richness of the gospel. And here Paul, in, in Corinthians chapter 2, gives us another metaphor, and this time it's Jesus Christ as a triumphant general returning from war. So let's read um, from verse 14. It says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession, and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. 
To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? So this, this metaphor is saying Jesus is going to war. Jesus is, is actually, it describes here the, the general returning from war. And, and this is a picture that the church in Corinth would have understood in the Roman context. It was a, a big tradition in, in Rome of a general that returned from a major foreign war. Once, if they returned successfully, they would have this triumphal procession through the streets of Rome. And it was not just for any campaign, not just for any war, but really just for the biggest and the most important wars that were fought. The, the Roman Senate would award a triumph for the, for the general. And what would happen was the general with his army and his captives, they would gather sort of outside Rome in the, what's called the Mars Plain. And then they would, from there they would start the procession into the city making stops at temples and at the Colosseum and the circus, and there were some kind of predefined stops, and it was an enormous celebration in the city. And what, would, what they would do is they would put the captives at the front of the parade, followed by the general, and um, he would be riding in a chariot with some of his um, adult sons would be around him riding horses, and then the army would come on behind him. And they would go through the, through the city. There would be lots of incense being burned all along the route. All the people would come out. It was a big, big deal. It's such a big deal that the dates of these triumphs were actually celebrated annually in holidays for a very long time afterwards. So this is the, the, the picture that Paul is, is using to describe you know, Christ's victory, the victory of God. And it tells us a few things. Firstly, notice that in this triumphal procession, we're not the army. We're not the, the victors. We are the enemies, the captives who were conquered by Christ. And he's leading us in um, to show his victory. Then second thing that it tells us is that God is at war with us. And we have rebelled against God. Right? There are two sides in a war. We've, we're at war with God. God is at war with us. And we've been fighting for our independence from Him. Right? This, that's, the, that's the picture. And now those of us who, who have surrendered have been brought into God's kingdom. And you know this, this picture of, of Christ as the general... Now, Jesus will keep on pursuing you, and he will keep on fighting against you as long as you insist on your own victory. As long as you insist on the victory of man, he's going to pursue you with convictions of sin. He's going to pursue you from one failed relationship to the next, from one um, maybe business, broken business venture to the next. And from wherever you put up a fight against him, He's going to keep on pursuing you until you surrender. He's going to, you know, whether that's you know, convictions of sin, convictions of righteousness, and that you're not righteous, 
the fear of death, whatever he's got to use, he's going to use it until you hand over, until you say, I can take it no more. I'm surrendering. I acknowledge I'm weak. You are stronger and, and you surrender. But Jesus is not just a fierce king and a fierce general. He's also kind. He's constantly sending us his emissaries, his messengers to say, if you surrender, these are the peace terms. Complete surrender, unconditional surrender. But when you surrender, I'll bring you into my kingdom. When you surrender, complete forgiveness. When you surrender, restoration of your relationship to God. So he's also a kind, kind king. So once you've, once you've returned, you, know, we can, you can come home into the kingdom of God. Like in Colossians, it says that God has transported us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son whom He loves. Um, there's another beautiful psalm that describes the psalm chapter 2. Um, and the whole psalm is about man's rebellion against God, you know, represented by their leaders who are saying, how can we throw off God's yoke? And then how God is laughing at them. He's saying, you know, you, you think you can throw off my yoke. I'm laughing at you. You are so weak and you don't even know it. And then the last verse is uh, verse 12. says, kiss the son. In other words, make peace with the son. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And then the big surprise. Big surprise at the end of, of, the, of the psalm. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So there's, there's forgiveness. And there's, there's blessing for those who surrender to God. And this is, this is the metaphor that... that Paul is bringing across. But, but what is the point of the, of the captives? Right? Why is he saying we are like captives spreading the knowledge of God? Well, if you think about it, in, in the Roman era, there was no television, there was no radio, there was no photography. The captives served a very important role as a visual picture of this is the people that we've conquered. You know, these are are the kings and the rulers and you know some of the, the officers and whoever they could put into, the, um, into this procession, visual evidence to everyone of the victory of the general. And that's why our weakness actually makes Christ known. You know, our weakness shows his strength. And, and we become to, to the world a, a fragrance, a fragrance of Jesus Christ and spreads, spreading his knowledge. And, and Paul really understood this. I think you could say Paul was probably the most well-known enemy of, of Jesus. Right? He tells us um, you know, his own story of how he persecuted Christians. He, he was there when they got killed. He threw many of them in prison. He was a raging enemy of God until he got conquered on the battlefield outside Damascus where Jesus threw him off his horse and, and he became a a servant. He became a captive of Jesus. And, and he understood this, this thing of his weakness and, and God's strength. You see, the, the gospel of the victory of man has no place in it for weakness. That's why to them, this, this knowledge of Christ is a stench of death. But to those who are being saved, 
the victory of God is a sweet aroma. It's a sweet fragrance that, that Christ's strength um, is seen in our weakness. And, and Paul, you know, for all his, all his struggles, all his um, suffering that he went through, he gloried in it. And he said, you know, God actually told him, my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is enough for you. So let us rather glory in the victory of God because his strength is shown also in our weakness. You know, let us stop trying to, to keep up appearances and rather um, acknowledge our weakness and let the world actually see God's strength through our weakness. Can you see how, how trying to, to hold on to, to a gospel of good appearances, of keeping up appearances, actually undercuts our testimony? It, it, it completely negates our, our, our witness to the world because they, they are, are, our strength or the strength that we're trying to show you know, is obscuring the, the strength of God. So, very good news after Paul wrote this severe letter is that the church um, actually repented. Right? So, so, Paul sent the letter by Titus, who was another one of his, of his close disciples and part of his missionary team. And Titus took this letter to Corinth and, and the church repented. But, you know, Paul unfortunately had to wait a long time for for the feedback, for the response from them. So, so he first went to Troas, as we read. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that that very first verse that said that Paul was so occupied with this thing, you know, while he was waiting for Titus, that he couldn't even preach. And I think uh, if you think about Paul, he's probably one of the best missionaries there ever was, from one of the best preachers there ever was. And he couldn't preach, even though he had the opportunity. This whole thing distressed him so much. It distressed him that, that the church was maybe putting their faith in something else than the pure gospel of Jesus. So, so he went to, Tro, uh, to Troas after he realized, you know what, I can't, I can't preach. Let me just rather go and wait for Titus in, in Macedonia. He went over to Macedonia, probably to Philippi or Thessalonica, one of those places, while he was waiting for Titus. And, and in, in Macedonia is where he, where he met Titus, and, and he rejoices. Go, you know, go and read chapter 7, where Paul writes about the joy when he heard that the church had repented. You know, so I think the, the distress that Paul was under just, just emphasizes how important this is and how important it is for us to, to repent if there's any aspect of our faith. I'm not saying your whole faith is based on, on keeping up a good appearance. I know we, you know we all believe the gospel that Jesus died for our sins and that our justification is in that and that he rose and that that's why we've got life. But I think there's an aspect of our faith that is actually in people thinking that you're a good Christian or... Um, yeah, I remember when I was in school, people used to talk about he's a groot Christian, a big Christian, right? You know, and if there's an aspect of your faith that, that rests on that, I want to ask you to repent. Just where you are in your own heart, let's, let's repent of putting our trust 
in our appearance and in what other people think of us. And let's rather put our trust wholeheartedly in the victory of God, that His victory is over sin, that He's conquered us and He's brought us into, into His kingdom. So, fortunately, this, this story had a happy ending. And, uh, yeah, let us, let us pray. I want to just pray that, that, that God would really cement this in our hearts. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for for the example that that Paul set, that he was not willing to let this beloved church suffer because of of a false gospel. Lord, because they were were trusting in, in something less than the true gospel. Lord, please help us to also not trust in anything less than the pure gospel, Lord. May our, may our hearts be not drawn away from pure devotion to Jesus. Um, Lord, like, like Paul also said later in the book, he betrothed the church to one, as a bride to one groom, to Jesus. And now he's afraid that, that their love has become divided. Lord, please forgive us where our love has become divided, Lord. Lord, where we've started to love our own fame, our own reputation, more than you. Lord, please bring us back to a pure devotion to Jesus. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Neil. Wow, that was, uh, that was very powerful, I think. Um, and I think um, some of you who are maybe understanding what Paul is saying in this last part of Second Corinthians 2 about, um, you know, thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession, mm-hmm. that we, we are being led as captives, and, and, and it's as captives that we point, as ones having been conquered, that we point to the victory of mm-hmm. God. And, and I just want to highlight two things from, from that um, that Neil said. He says, thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal, uh, triumphal procession. In other words, this is not just something that happens until you get saved. This is, something, this, this is the Christian life that is being described here. Um, Paul is describing the Christian life as always being led as part of Christ's triumphal uh, uh, procession as a in a sense, a, a conquered trophy of his victory over us. Mm. The victory of God over man. Um, and, and it's not just something that happens once after. It's, it, the whole Christian life is that. In other words, what Paul is asking us, and I think what Neil is asking us is, is it not only your victories that point to Christ, but your defeats? Do your defeats point to Christ as well? Because if you believe the wrong gospel, then you don't think that your defeats can point to Christ. But Christ conquering us is actually pointing to him as the conquering king, the son who must be kissed and, uh, and, and the one that we must find refuge in. Mm. Do you believe a gospel that allows your defeats to glorify Christ and to point to him and say he's the conquering one? I think that's very challenging, especially in this world that values victory, our victory so much, Mm. and a modern church that has allowed the world's values to infiltrate the church, where we as the church, especially the Western church, value the appearance of victory. 
so much that we often feel in our hearts that our defeats cannot glorify Christ and cannot point to Christ. Mm. Um, And then, you know, just imagine, I mean, just as part of that picture, you know, people who were conquered, they, they, they fought a bloody battle, they wounded, they bleeding, they, they, they're full of dirt, they're full of sweat, they're stinking, and then they were force marched from wherever they were conquered to Rome. And when they arrived there, they, you can just imagine the stench of all of those captives. And it's that aroma that Paul says is the aroma of life to those who are being saved, but the stench of death to those who are perishing. In other words, Here's the question, and and I'm presenting this as as a second kind of test, whether we believe the true gospel. Do you stink to some people? Do some people dislike the way you spiritually smell? Or does everyone just like, you know, oh, you know, Neil smells so good, you know, all the time, you know, spiritually speaking. Is everyone always complimenting you or are there some people who sometimes criticize you? Does everyone always like you or are there some people who dislike you intensely and don't want to be around you? I think that's a test that Paul is giving us whether we believe the true gospel or not. So let's do what Neil said. Let's let's test our hearts, see whether we truly believe the true gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the true true Jesus, and not a a false gospel of a false Jesus. Mm. Father God, we just come to you today, and we thank you, Lord, for your truth, Lord, which is, Lord, at the same time so convicting. Lord, it, it conquers us. Lord, I think of that song that we sometimes sing, Jesus, you have won me. Mm. And we realize when we read scriptures like this that, that that is biblical. You have conquered us. You have won us. You have defeated us. But yet you have conquered us with your love. Mm. You've conquered us with your kindness. And we thank you for that. Thank you that we have the privilege mm. of being your captives. And as your captives, in our weakness, pointing to your strength. Mm. In our defeat, pointing to your victory. And we pray that you'll be glorified by this. Mm. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There's a, um, a blessing in the Old Testament in Numbers 6 called the Aaronic Blessing that I, I just want to pray over you. Um, if you guys can just bring it up onto the screen. It says in Numbers 6, verse 24 to 26, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But I also want to share another blessing from this very letter of 2 Corinthians, right at the end, the last verse. Paul speaks this blessing over the Corinthians, and I want to speak it over you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, Mm. the love of God, and the fellowship, the continuing fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you. And I want to send you, go out Mm. as captives of Christ, Mm. that constantly through both your victories and your defeats point to His victory Mm. and to him as the conquering king the lord bless you as you go thanks for listening to this message from shofar joburg may the grace you receive produce god's greatest glory and your greatest good for more information and sermons please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com